1: Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on the Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, October 29 is episode number 128. Well, just ahead, if you think this mega merger from Zendesk looks ridiculous, you're not alone. And LendingTree is crushing it despite a surge in car crashes. We'll explain. And we'll talk about the remarkable SPAC success of DMY technology. Six deals under their belt right now. We've got CEO Nicolo DeMassi to talk about how those SPACs have differed from so many of the failed SPACs in the market. But first, it's sponsor time.
2: The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company, watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings and more, all within an easy to use, customizable interface. That's era A I E R A dot com.
1: And you can listen to the drill down on your smart speaker by saying to the smart speaker, Play the Drill Down Podcast.
2: You can listen to our latest show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more.
1: I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We will have the business stories behind some stocks in the movie. But first, we'll have executive producer Isaac Webster, who has the three most important developments in the world of business today.
2: Corey, let's start with some echo, echo data, eco data, consumer prices rising echo, for echo. the at the fastest data, pace. Data. Data, 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 data. Consumer prices rising for the fa- at the fastest pace in 30 years in September. Workers saw their biggest compensation boost in at least 20 years. This, is according to new government data. Uh, consumer, consumer spending also rising in September, despite the expiration of enhanced unemployment benefits. Now the reports point to a recovery caught between robust consumer demand and severe supply shortages leading to a rapid uptick in inflation. They also put pressure on the federal reserve as it prepares to meet next week.
1: Yeah. Really interesting. I think inflation uh, and inflation, like we're talking about, it's going to be one of the most important things right here because it is the thing that's slowing the economy. And yet, of course, the fed has got these sort of record low rates. We'll see what inflation does to slow down the economy. We talked about GDP numbers yesterday, and we're hearing that from the companies that we talked to on the show and we hear from the show every day.
2: All right, now let's get to China. China Evergrande avoided default for the second time by making an overdue interest payment on dollar bonds shortly before the end of a 30-day grace period. This is according to the Wall Street Journal who had who says it has uh, it's, uh, talked to people familiar with the matter. Now Evergrande was on the hook to pay about $45 million. Last week, Evergrande unexpectedly made a $83.5 million payment on another set of dollar bonds. Now, finally, Microsoft is once again the most valuable company in the US, the company's market cap topping $2.44 trillion and surpassing Apple for the first time in more than a year. Microsoft's better than expected earnings report was the latest catalyst that pushed the stock higher. Meanwhile, Apple warning the supply chain Supply chain disruptions are hindering iPhone and other product manufacturing. These issues are expected to bring increased challenges during the important holiday shopping quarter. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with LendingTree. LendingTree trades under TREE, T-R-E-E, shares rose 14% today, but they've fallen 53% in a year.
1: Yeah, LendingTree just reporting a, a fantastic quarter um, for the third third quarter results. So LendingTree, Lending as you mentioned, the stock hasn't done great over time, but had a great day today at least. Um, these guys have a you know I don't even know the business, but they've got a, a online consumer platform that has three segments of home, consumer, and insurance, and they basically are a lead generation business. People, uh, insurance companies, and the like will will run ads on LendingTree and try to get uh, try to get uh, Leads through these services, well, they reported just a really, really strong quarter, and their business is just crushing it. Uh, revenues were up year over year thirty five percent to almost three hundred million dollars in the quarter. Their loss shrunk from thirty three million dollars to four million dollars it's an eighty seven percent improvement um and it was kind of across the board their their uh, home business up forty two percent their their mortgage business up thirty one percent and their consumer segment up one hundred and seven percent um although the auto business, the auto ad business, was actually kind of weak for them, the insurance business, I should say. It's not for cars, but really insurance. Um, And they had some interesting comments about um, what was going on with auto insurers. And that is that, and we've heard this before, that auto insurers are having to pay out a lot more premiums because people are getting into crashes like crazy. Um, uh, COVID-19 led to some changes in the way people drive. Of course, you know, in the last year and a half or so, when the particularly when everything was shut down, there was not a lot of driving going on, but a lot of faster driving and the number of, of fatal crashes uh, started to climb, but they've continued to climb even though the economy has been coming back and people have been getting back to work and the roads are busier, but people are still driving like maniacs as if no one was out there anymore. During the first three months of this year, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said that uh, 8730 people died in motor vehicle crashes um, at the same time, a year in 2020 was just 7,900. That's about 11% more. So is that the only reason in, um, uh, auto insurers are having to pay out? Surely not. But uh, the insurance companies are just pulling back from advertising because they don't want more customers because they've got to pay out more in premiums. Really interesting dilemma. Now, lending LendingTree is what was able, to, as I mentioned, to earn beyond this. But I thought it was really interesting to hear the commentary um, from the CEO, Doug Lebda, talking about how this uh, this auto insurance business is a little bit different right now.
3: What you're seeing right now is basically insurance companies that are obviously enormous spenders of advertising, um, pulling back some insurance companies, pulling back bids um, to reduce the flow of inbound volume because um, they're facing right now Higher loss rates in some, particularly auto insurance, uh, and those rates have not gone through regulators yet. So um, we and that's what our partners tell us um, that we know our business works, we know our partnerships are strong, um, and then we're and and that's what they tell us is going to happen. Um, and it's never fun when that happens. However, it also shows the flexibility of the model. When you've got your marketing dialed in like that, I mean, this is still a very profitable business for us. And because we can market at scale, we can weather this uh, better than most companies can. And I think that's going to create a lot of opportunities. So when something like this happens, it happens to every lead supplier in the industry. And they're probably working with 10 or 20, with us being one of the biggest You'll start to see a lot of weeding out in the same way that we used to have a lot of search engines, and now we only have one or two. Um, during cycles like this, it would weed; it'll weed out a lot of the buyers, and it'll probably be a long-term benefit for us uh, because we won't have as much media competition.
1: So I thought that was super fascinating. That that you know, is it bad for them? Yeah. Is it bad for everyone else? Yeah. But the, because they've got all their other businesses, they'll survive, and some competitors might actually go away.
2: Corey, what is your next drill down?
1: Let's look at US Steel, a company we don't talk a lot about, but a, a fascinating one, particularly this year.
2: US Steel trades under X. X shares rose almost 13% today, and they've gained 168% over the past 12 months.
1: So, US Steel uh, out with earnings uh, that were just fantastic uh, uh, it, because people buy a lot of steel and because the steel prices are going up. Revenues uh, year over year up 150% to $6 billion. Profits, well, they went from a loss of two and a quarter million dollars, call it, a year ago to a $2 billion profit in the quarter. They shipped 41 million tons of steel in the third quarter, up from 3 million a year ago. Uh, And the prices, as I mentioned, have been really good for them, up 75% year to date, although down in the last uh, three months by about 5%. Uh, And it's interesting for this company, this is of course a very big company, Uh, market cap is, you know, $6.3 billion, but throw in the debt and cash, the enterprise value of this company is $11 billion. And what's changing for them are two things. One is the types of contracts and the duration of the contracts that they have. They don't have customers just rolling in and wanting to buy the steel, pun intended, rolling in, but rolling in and wanting to buy steel on the spot market and and make a singular deal. They're doing longer-term contracts, multi-month contracts, even multi-year contracts. The other thing that's changing Is they're hiring people from outside of the steel industry, um, uh, and they're finding that those people have ideas that are uncommon and helpful to U.S. steel. Here's CEO Dave Burrett.
3: You know, that basically the the current landscape on contracts, we had great relationships with the customers and clearly we're we're moving from more of a transactional approach to a strategic approach where we're getting notifications more quickly from the customers that are our best customers and those that are the enduring customers and those are the customers that, that like to have contracts, not just, you know, short term contracts, but um, two-year contracts or so. So we're very pleased with uh, the commercial relationships that we have. And, and frankly, what we've done is we've revamped the whole commercial process, making it more robust, brought in talent from outside the company to look differently at steel, neither blessed nor handicapped, I'd say, with steel industry experience. And that's been a, a big difference for uh, for us as well.
1: I love that. Neither blessed nor handicapped with the relevant experience. Um, and that's helping them. I like to hear, maybe there's hope for us, Isaac. Maybe in our next uh, turn, we will be running a steel company. What do you think?
2: I'm all about that, yeah.
1: I am neither blessed nor handicapped by experience in the steel business.
2: And I am not a man of steel.
1: Siobhan is. No, wait, that's wrong. Uh.
2: Anyway. What is your next drill down? Let's look at Zendesk. Zendesk. Uh, Zendesk share, trades under Z-E-N, ZEN. Shares fell 14% today and they have fallen 4% in a year.
1: So Zendesk, yeah, shares down 14% today. They announced this, this uh, merger idea with the company that owns SurveyMonkey. It's called Momentive. That seemed kind of weird when I saw the, the headlines cross. I'm like, why the hell would Zendesk want to buy uh, SurveyMonkey? Zendesk is like a like a, a you know a, a live chat software business for customers of all kinds. A, a kind of a, a you know when you when you're on some website and you it says do you want to talk to us right now you're probably using Zendesk software even talking to Zendesk people. What the hell does SurveyMonkey have to do with that? Well, the stock market looked at this and said what the hell does SurveyMonkey have to do with Zendesk? They looked at this merger and said this doesn't make any sense for either company. Uh, buying SurveyMonkey for $4.1 billion worth of stock. So as soon as they announced this thing, and Zendesk will own about 78% um, uh, of the combined company uh, and Momentum shareholders are own 22%. But when they announced this deal, the stock market sold off both companies saying this just doesn't make any sense. We don't even know the analysts coming out saying we don't even know how to analyze this because it doesn't make any sense. So one wonders what the CEO of Zendesk might say, explaining this, Mikael Svan was asked about this right from right here in uh, Zendesk headquarters in San Francisco, right down the street from uh, the Ferry building where the drill down podcast is being created at this very moment. And what he said was, it, this is an all-timer. I just want you to hear uh, Miguel Svan talk about what SurveyMonkey's platform and Momentive and the iconic SurveyMonkey platform has to offer. You
4: know, uh, uh, Momentum and its iconic uh, SurveyMonkey platform has is ubiquitous in the market today. It is the the world's largest feedback platform. And like you like you can you you may be able to build some similar technology. You can never get the experience. You can never get the the DNA. You can never get the trust required that is in that platform. And first and foremost, of course, a fantastic brand. You know, um, there is a level of experience that we will never be be able to match in in such a product. And this is like we've all, like we've always been partners in many different ways, you know. And, and we have a, 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 a of course a big overlap in customers. But I think that like really putting these things together and and really executing on this vision of providing additional kind of. A, a different depth and a richness on your customer pictures by overlapping kind of what they say and do with what they with the, how they how they think and feel you know it's it's incredibly powerful, and we believe that that it will create a whole new dimension on understanding and a whole new richer picture of your customers
1: yes, a richer picture a four point one billion dollar richer picture, Isaac, if you thought you couldn't put a price tag on je ne sais quoi. They have put a $4.1 billion price tag on je ne sais quoi. The price tag is now falling because the market's not really agreeing with the notions behind this weird merger. All right, uh, coming up an announcement. This marks six months of daily podcasts and it's been a blast. Uh, We're going to change the pace of things going forward. We're going to see what weekly podcasts look like for a few months. Uh, and see what's what, how that might change the show, how it might change our audience, how uh, advertisers and, and everybody else might react. We hope our listeners most of all enjoy the show uh, weekly, done with a little more maybe uh, time and consideration for every episode. Um, but uh, we appreciate the time you've spent with us, and we want you to stay with us on this journey as we go uh, weekly for a while here and see what that feels like. And who better to kick off the last daily show uh, for now, then our guest, DMY Technologies CEO Niccolo De Masi. Uh, Niccolo has brought uh, now six spacs to market. Uh, the the first five have done pretty well. Indeed, it's one of the best spac underwriters in all of Wall Street, uh, with an, a very different approach and an interesting story. When the drill down continues.
2: The drill down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill
1: Down Podcast. As promised, Nicolo Damassi joins us. Uh, Nicolo, so many ways I could introduce you uh, and your affiliation. The most important I should mention is that you are, in fact, an investor in the business podcast network, the parent company of this podcast, uh, that disclosure aside, how, how shall I, you know, you've got all these different specs that you have uh, sponsored under the
0: DMY uh, umbrella. Very true. We, we uh, just IPO would our sixth one. Um, and speaking of, of, of being an investor, Corey, I don't feel like I, I get any special treatment for it. I'll be honest. You know, we, we <laughs> schedule, we schedule once a quarter or two and uh, it isn't like I've got an hour and a half of airtime every morning or something like that. So uh,
1: Unfortunately, the only get meaner questions than anyone else. Exactly. Right, so, to say, I just get tougher questions. Exactly. Okay. So, why should <clears> anyone care about your crappy little SPAC offerings?
0: Um, because we're the number one oh, best performing SPAC franchise uh, in the world, actually. So, if you look at post close share price performance, the DMY franchise overall has been not just the most consistent returner, but it's actually been the the best returner, um, our first two SPACs are trading at about $20, which means they've doubled the third ones, uh, up about 15 or 20% right now. Um, and, uh, the rest of them are trading, you know, not around, around 10, not down. And so believe it or not, Chamath and I seem to be competing for the top of the league table most weeks. It really depends on how, uh, his stocks move and ours move. Uh, not that we are friends. We've met exactly one time, I think at, uh, Phil Sandberg's house for a, uh, Bill Helmuth book party launch. Um, oh man, the names but, are uh,
1: dropping like rainbows A long time right ago. Now. Yeah,
0: it was a long time ago, though. Corey. Uh, yeah, we, we, we,
1: Chamath we're being <laughs> Chamois uh, an early Facebook employee and a sponsor of many specs, including some that have virtually nothing. You know, uh, Virgin, maybe Virgin Galactic, maybe the the biggest of his his offerings. I think
0: I think that's right, and there are a number of other performers that feature in the league tables. Um, but all of them have been much less consistent than uh, than he and I have been. So the Gore's brothers have done more spacs sure. uh, than Shamath or I, but uh, they've been all over the place. And there's been a few other sponsors have been quite volatile. So um, believe it or not, Corey, even though the you know some people say the spac market's gotten difficult, it has not gotten difficult if you're in, in the top top five or top ten. Um, so our our DMY six yeah. IPO just a few weeks ago was actually the second most oversubscribed deal. Uh, DMY has ever done. Um, and that was despite the fact that, you know, it's been a non-trivial summer for for some SPAC teams. So there's, there's a flight to quality that's underway is kind of the theme, I think, um, that everyone should take away from this, which is sort of like in the early days of venture capital and private equity, there's going to be KKRs and Carlyles and Blackstones and Sequoias that get built here. Um, there'll be plenty of people that try and plenty that fail, but the, the, the top five people are going to do do quality deals and do a quality job for the ecosystem. And, you know, DMY in particular is focused on being long-term greedy. So we're very focused on doing the right thing for all the stakeholders in our deals from the IPO to the pipe to, of course, the companies, institutional investors and retail. Um, And deal after deal, we we're focused on making sure that everyone has a good experience with us and comes back for another one.
1: Well, uh, so let's let's talk a little. First of all, I, it, it's such an interesting turn uh, for your career, right? Where you've, you know, I, I don't, I don't think for all of the many hats you've worn—public companies, CEO, director, developer, computer scientist—I I didn't see investment banker in your past, let alone in your future. And yet here you are, sponsoring companies to go public.
0: Yeah, and, and that's an interesting point. I mean. Two things. One, I, I actually was an M&A banker early in my career. It was my one of my first jobs, Corey, believe it or not. It's just not on my CV often because it was only for a few years. Um, second of all, I actually think what makes us the best performing SPAC franchise is the fact that we are not treating this like uh, M&A bankers. So yeah. I actually jokingly often say that if you look at the league table – you know, we're at the top of the list, Chamas the top of the list, neither of us are recovering investment bankers. Um, and I think he approaches his deal is quite different than we do, but my, my partner, Harry, you and I are both CEOs and CFOs of public companies. And so we have a lot of empathy for what it's like to sit in the chair going through an IPO. We have done, you know, a few dozen IPOs between us. We've done probably 150 public M&A deals on the, on the CEO side, on the principal side. Right. Um, and we've Harry now done the CFO you know, six backs.
1: Was CFO of Oracle for a while.
0: The Oracle, 100%. Accenture, EMC. You know, he's had a couple decades more experience than I have. But between the two of us, you know, I've probably done twenty years of public market stuff as a principal, and Harry's done about forty. So, um, what makes us unique is we're we're not advisors. And um, so, what I always like to remind people, Corey, is we're the only SPAC sponsors on that table who are used to being the people carrying the bag two years later on decisions. Right. And so we take that responsibility super seriously. You know, we we have an investor following because in the last twenty years, whether it's the Accenture IPO for Harry or it's Glue Mobile for me, people have made a fair amount of money from us uh, institutionally. I mean, they're up twenty five x in Accenture and they're up twelve x in Glue If you bought in when I signed up, and you know, the reality is people remember thousand percent returns if you're a Fidelity or a T Rail or a Wellington or you know a Capital. And so. We we work really hard on preserving that reputation, right? At the end of the day, we, yeah. we're always making sure that we do the right things for the Ecosystem, we take the long term uh, approach, and ultimately, we look at decisions through the lens of how will this be viewed in two years, not how will this look, you know, in the next well, month or two. Well, and
1: I'll I'll make the argument that Chamath has done the opposite. I don't want to spend time ripping on Chamath, but he's done some deals that have that were not only have the deals blown up. He's gotten out first, and his long-term investments were short-term, and he's completely reversed himself on some of those deals. I, don't, I know you won't say a word about it, so I won't even. No, I mean, look, there's
0: he—he's not the only SPAC sponsor who's had a volatile track record of big highs, big lows. Yeah. And I think what makes us different is we take a very deliberately different approach. We get different IPO investors. We work really hard to get our money, you know, raised at the start of the SPAC process harder than than we need to because we want to put shareholders in there who are going to be there for the long term. So let's so talk about I, that. So
1: we've seen a, a huge change in the SPAC business over the course of the last summer. I'd even say two big changes. And and one of them is the pipe offerings kind of going away. The pipe sponsors coming who used to come in there, uh, they're, they're just not there in the size that they used to be. So that you can make an argument that the pipe sponsors who are coming into these deals now are sort of used as a vetting prices, a process. So you propose, you, you do the SPAC IPO, then you find the company you want to put inside of the SPAC, and then you shop that around privately to some pipe sponsors and find out, hey, maybe they want to pay for this, maybe they don't. And if they don't, the deals aren't happening. And so a lot of these SPAC, there are a lot of spec shells out there where the companies are they're never doing the merger, they're never finding the operating company to put inside of the SPAC. And I think that the collapse of the pipe market is part of that.
0: Are yeah, that? and there, well, we're not if you're on that league table. So the top the top five, 10 teams are getting the money that is reserved in the piggy bank by institutions that are saving it just for sort of highest quality proven track record, to be honest. I mean, we were, yeah. we were five or six times oversubscribed on our IPO and our pipes have all been upsized every single one of them, um, including, you know, the four that we did during the summer. And, you know, for sure the summer was an interesting moment because there were a lot of things that weren't going well for a lot of people. Um, but people read through that. And so what I'll say, Corey, is if you are on that league table page in the top five, top 10, you have an investor following, right? You've made, you've made people a lot of money. Right. Um, and those people are gonna give you the benefit of the doubt of at least taking the meeting. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean they're gonna write a check no matter what, but if you bring a quality asset and you price it properly and you forecast properly, those investors, odds on bet, are gonna wanna be involved. Um, I think that there is a bifurcation in, in quality of sponsors, bifurcation in quality of transactions, and frankly, a bifurcation in approach, right? And there was a whole slew of people that I think nine months ago had a moment when they could fling a fair amount of spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks, and you know, call themselves a SPAC sponsor. That You and I both know that's an anomaly. If you look at your career in the public markets or mine, you know, those moments come for a quarter or two at a time yeah. about every decade. Yeah, uh, or and and, two. and they're they're not mostly around. Like careers are not really built off of that quarter. Uh, well, and
1: right? to to that point, right? Where SPACs are an appropriate vehicle for companies that um, to whom an IPO is not the right way to get public, but getting public is the right thing for them. And instead, we had lots of companies that maybe shouldn't have been public at all. We had lots of sponsors that shouldn't be sponsors at all. That's right. Um, and it attracted frauds looking for easy money, and we've seen a bunch of those. Uh, in the electric car and truck space and, and beyond.
0: Yeah. yeah, look, I, th- I think, there, let's see, my first back, there was probably 30 or 40 of them in the market at the time. Goldman Sachs did one per quarter. Uh, even Goldman Sachs, was supposed to be the choosiest of the choosy, probably went from one a quarter to one a month. And I swear at one point, they were doing one a week. Right? Yeah. And the number of SPACs in existence today, you know, there's 400 of them. Now, what I think is going to happen in the next 18 months all those people that are first-time sponsors that don't really have the chops and the tactics and the playbook, they're going to mostly time out and go away. So right? the
1: SPACs have a three-year window in which they've got to two. generally, a two, generally two-year two. Two. window. Generally two. A two-year window in which they've got to find a company to put inside the back or give the money back to the That's people right. who bought the shares.
0: And so the people that bought the shares will mostly get their money back, and they'll have warrants, and there'll be a bunch of SPAC zombies wandering around with kind of little to no money in their trust trying to find, you know, lemonade stands to take public, you know, or whatever. Um, and the Do you reality know a story? Is the story?
1: I might have told it before <laughs> in the on this show before, but the reverse merger world was like this. There were, there were a bunch of um, essentially shells of companies that were mining companies, uh, particularly in Utah, uh, uranium mines. And there were so many of them, the paper stock certificates were floating around and they were worthless, that there was a story of an outhouse who, whose wallpaper was glued on certificates, worthless certificates, until someone figured out these shells because they could put a new company inside of these shells. And so they went out to the outhouse and tried to steam the certificates off the walls to bring them into a brokerage to cash them in for new shares. But that's how worthless these things can become. I didn't,
0: I didn't know that story, but there are people that have tried to take outhouses and single branches of restaurants public. There, yes. is, there is a fund, I think, somewhere on the East Coast that has done a sort of deal to try and innovate in that space. Um, yeah, so there's a former it,
1: president who is a – Trying to create a who hasn't isn't trying to create, but says he might create a social network of some yeah. kind. He might have and a business, taking that public through his back. Might
0: have a business. Well, I actually think that on that one, for what it's worth, you're seeing pent up demand that rightly so is playing into you know questions around whether or not privacy, ad models, bifurcation of you know anger and engagement first to power of the ad models is really sustainable. And I feel like that, I feel like a lot of that enthusiasm is an outlet for. Give me anything that's an alternative, you know, that's vital to some extent. To Facebook, right? Twitter.
1: Um, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of just give me anything. Um, there's sort of a hunger from both, I think, consumers and investors to look at alternative models. I mean, you, you see it in the messaging space with Signal and Telegram. You see it with right. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who's trying to redo infrastructure and the internet the you know, inventors of the internet yeah. privacy encryption and all this kind of thing right and so I think there's people you know grasping for that and i think investors are hungry for options whereas I, as I like to put it I think there's people who want options where you know we aren't the product you know a little joke if you don't know who the product is and it's free you are yes. the product so so I think you know
1: it's it's are right there you're playing poker you look product. around the room you don't know who the sucker is it's you right um, right that's right
0: that, that's right
1: let me ask you also about sort of pricing, right? So the, the suggestion is if there's, you said 400, I think, you know, there, there's funded deals, 130 or 140 or something that are out there looking for companies to t- pick up right now. It would presumably be a seller's market, except if you're a company that wants to get public through a SPAC, you really don't want a super high price because, you, you, you know, you can't perform and it'll lead to the stock not doing well.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, Corey, you, you know that I've run, this is my ninth public company now, DMY6, that I've either been on the board of or been the CEO of or chair of a committee on the board. And, you know, I've mostly experienced times that are not euphoric, I mean, whether it's the back of the dot-com boom, the back of the Great Recession, you know, like most of, most of my public company career as an operator was built in the back of troughs. And I've raised money in difficult situations, you know, like 2010, when I got to glue, we were running out of money. We had to do a pipe. Um, and so I've seen fundraise cycles and pipes, yeah, in all in all bits of the market. And here's the thing: there there is a public m- market demand curve in all stages of all markets. And what always I, I find compelling all products too. Yeah, probably all products too. But you know, my, what always makes me sort of chuckle when people say the pipe market is is hard or closed. I'm like, well, yeah, it's hard or closed if you a) you have no track record, b) you don't have a good asset, and c) you don't price it well. But if those three things are the opposite, it functions. Just like every market functions if you have a track record, a good product, a reason to believe and you price it properly, right? So is there a pricing correction underway? Yes, but DMY has always priced conservatively, forecast conservatively. It's one of the reasons why we the most sustainable and stable performance post close because we actually treat our deals like an old fashioned uh, IPO, Corey. So what I would say to people is like, if you're a company that's looking for a trade sale uh, and you want to consider a SPAC as an alternative to a trade sale, don't call us. <laughs> we are not an alternative to a trade sale, right? We are one of the three ways that you can go public. We're here to build sustainable long-term public companies that typically will start out with, you know, one, two, two, three, $4 billion market caps. And we're trying to build, you know, the 10, $20 billion market cap, if not more businesses long-term. Um, and we're here for entrepreneurs who want to build great public companies, not who are looking for, you know, either a quick financing move or a quick trade sale. The other
1: thing that's interesting to me in the financing side right now is that you had a lot of uh, funds sort of using SPACs as an arbitration move, which is to say they'd pay their $10 for the SPAC stock. They would wait until the warrant was trading well. They would maybe hold the stock and sell the warrant, maybe sell the stock and hold or and, and, yeah. and or sell the warrant. Hold the stock, or or even short the stock, sell the warrant. They've got a profit. They've or keep the warrant, right? You've got a essentially a call option of the warrant. You short the stock once the warrant publicly is publicly traded, and there's an arbitrage moment. Is that still happening in great size?
0: So I think that uh, warrant coverage reduced dramatically in the last year, and so the kind of carry trade on that became less profitable. It's still in existence to some extent, but I will point out. There's really not much of an opportunity to short a pre-close SPAC. And the reason for that is you can redeem at $10. Right. So no one's going to really, right, buy, you know, look look to buy and sell stock at 19, you know, 995 if you have a guaranteed 10 bucks, you know, no matter what, right? I mean, you can argue about time value money. There are of course funds who have been injured, okay, in the last year or two. Have capital calls themselves or overlevered. I mean, there are technical issues that people run into like that, but well, typically, that. yeah, yeah. But but typically, you see most most trusts early on are going to hang out, you know, near ten dollars. You know, if they don't find a deal for a year, I think you have different, you know, different crises of confidence. But in the first year, they're going to trade out, trade near ten bucks. After they close, right stuff. You know, they're fully trading stock, and they're like any business. You can have shorts and you can have longs. Um, the warrants start trading usually uh, 90 days after the IPO uh, right. separately. And so people can buy the warrants or they can buy the unit of the stock and the warrant or they can buy the stock. Um, and I've seen, you know, I think the, I think the riskless thing to do, you know, Corey, typically was people selling the stock position, get their cash back, even at 995, keep the warrant. Um, and there are arbitrageurs that lever up a position at 995, you know, seven times and make, 2% times whatever say, leverage leverage the, the is. Prime brokerages
1: right? are letting them do that pre-deal. But once the deal's announced, the, that leverage goes away.
0: Uh, I mean typically. it's up to them, right? It's like it's like any stock, right? So I mean it depends on who you are. I'm sure if you're a big fund, you can still get, you know, terms from people and you'll be able to borrow anyway. Um but it, it's a pretty liquid market now, is one thing I would say. I mean, you know, the reality is there are people playing across the ecosystem. And one of the one of the more interesting things that I've sort of seen, you know, we We've had we've had virtually no redemptions in our SPACs to date. In Q3, we closed EMY3, which is the world's first quantum computing company, INQ, and the average redemptions in Q3 was 52%, even for good teams. Uh, and right. our redemptions were 2%. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we really are performing spectacularly well, and we intend to work hard to keep that, no guarantees, so we're gonna work our, our damnedest tails off to maintain that. And you know, what I'd say is that, you know, people that have had redemptions, you know, not us, people that have had redemptions, had quality assets. They've often had a very small free float and the stocks have zoomed up. And so there's been a number of situations where people had 50% redemptions or even more tiny free float and stock goes to, you know, 14 or 15 or 16, you know, a day or two after the close, because there are people that want to buy the stock. There are people that are not allowed to buy it pre-close. And there's some funds that are like Wellington really won't buy it pre-close, for example, right. and uh, a couple others. Capital Research can't buy it pre-close, but they'll do a pipe. Um, and so these big guys come gunning in after it closes and names that they like, they've done research on and they've done work on. And there's not a lot of sellers, right? And so the reality is, you know, that this will correct itself. Corey is what I'm saying. This redemption phenomenon and quality assets that then zoom up, that will get fixed. There'll be people doing backstops and all sorts of fixes on providing liquidity. Well- through the trust. And, and then, but slowly but surely, you know, the ecosystem like old Darwinian market-based things, you know, there'll be fewer SPACs, there'll be fewer SPACs doing high quality deals only. Um, and what I always like to say about our companies is, we look for businesses that can go public through any IPO mechanism, it's just a question of when. So you might be going public a year or two earlier with us than you might with a direct listing, for example, but we're looking for the assets that are of that caliber. That are ready. Well, that will be ready for a direct listing in a year or two, but the underlying assets, you know, the management team, the growth trajectory—you know—it's on a path to be there, albeit in a year. I or think two.
1: there's going to be an opportunity too, from you know, this is Corey with the the re- recovering short seller, where uh, a line I stole from Joe Feshback, by the way. But the reco- the Corey the recovering short seller says, boy, there are going to be some SPACs that are, you know, months, weeks, days away from having to give the money back near that that, that two year deadline. And they'll go out and do deals with crummy companies. And those might be some stocks that, that are gussied up to look good for the deal, but uh, might be very a good short opportunities after a, a further inspection.
0: Yeah, I don't think they'll get the votes, right? I mean, the reality is, you know, every IPO oh, come on. mechanism,
1: so much garbage has gone public through the, some specs already. They got the votes.
0: Yeah, but don't you think people are learning learning machines? You think they're going to vote for another you know business people? that's pushing, pushing a truck down a hill and says you it's uh, in more. motion? You right. need to get out more. People are I people. Have, I have people faith in institutional <laughs> investors. I, I do think they're pretty smart. They do their work. Um, look, something will slip through. I, I don't disagree with you on that front. But I think people who are at the end of the tether who can't get deals done. People will be increasingly skeptical of, right? And that's what I keep saying, you know, flight to quality. They'll be the top 10 sponsors who get deals done pretty quickly. And there'll be everybody else. And so in general, there's gonna be fewer ones. And whoever's in the field, you know, you're gonna have a clear sorting of better underwriters, better institutions, better companies, proven sponsors, and virtuous circles and network effects keep powering, you know, the flight to quality.
1: Nicolo Debassi from DMY, thank you for your time today. We do appreciate it and we appreciate your support of the Business Podcast Network as well. When the drill down continues, we're gonna have one number that tells us even more about DMY and the success they've had in the SPAC world. That's when The Drill Down
2: continues after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era. A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down podcast on your smart speaker.
1: If it's, for example, on Amazon Alexa, you can say, Hey, Alexa, play the latest Drill Down podcast. You can listen to our latest show.
2: And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at drilldownpod and connect with us directly at our website, thispod.net.
1: All right, we're back with the Drill Down Bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot. Well, Isaac, we were talking about the ability of uh, DMY to raise money and indeed their most recent deal. They uh, did a $241.5 million listing of the shell that they will put some company into, or at least they hope to put some company into. It's an interesting size, right? Uh, with all the success, you wonder why aren't they doing billion dollar or $2 billion deals. But this size is kind of perfect uh, for them because typically a SPAC will go in uh, and buy a company about five times the size of the SPAC. So this would kind of suggest and looking be looking for about a billion to something or other to put into it. And uh, as mentioned, you know, they have had some success. Um, uh, Rust Street Interactive, for example, one of the deals they did, trading at $20 now. Typical SPAC comes out at 10 bucks to trade at $20 within a year or so is a very impressive return. And they've had a bunch of impressive returns Um, and uh, love talking to Niccolo anytime. All right, you've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. We are grateful for the time that you spend with us. And we'll look forward to connecting with you on the back end at a weekly pace a Little while here. Isaac Webster has been with us throughout, except when Siobhan was here. That was a lot of fun. Did I mention that, Isaac?
2: So great to uh, have here. Yes, yes, you have mentioned it.
1: But Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The drill down is a production for Business Podcast Network.